We're continuing our series through the book of Nehemiah, which tells the story of God's people rebuilding the city of God. Nehemiah is all about building a new Jerusalem, which, as we saw back in the book of Revelation, is precisely what the church is called to do today. We are called to build a new Jerusalem. And so we are turning to the book of Nehemiah to learn how we are to go about doing that. Last week in chapter 6, despite all sorts of opposition, including blackmail and death threats and political conspiracy, the walls of Jerusalem were completed. So, in this 13-chapter book about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem are entirely rebuilt by chapter 6. What's the rest of the book about? Well, obviously, the goal was never just to rebuild the city for the sake of having a rebuilt city. The goal was always to rebuild the city in order to repopulate the city. What good is a holy city without a holy people to dwell within it? So having rebuilt a holy city, the rest of Nehemiah is about reconstituting and reforming a holy people to dwell within it. The rest of Nehemiah is about Israel reclaiming their their roots and reorienting themselves to their purpose as a holy nation. We have 91 verses to cover today, so it probably goes without saying that we'll be looking at the bigger picture of what's happening in chapters 7 and 8. According to chapter 7, verse 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So again, the, the walls have been rebuilt, but who is going to live within them? That is the fundamental question that chapter 7 is answering. Who is going to live within the holy city? Now, before we move on, a a brief point of clarity. If we read chapters 7 and 8 through a a modern lens, it's going to sound a bit off-putting. We will see joy and feasting and submission to the scriptures, but we will also see an effort to cleanse the people by prohibiting certain people from entering into the city, and by forbidding intermarriage. So keep in mind that racism was not at the root of this. From the moment Israel came out of Egypt, she was a multi-ethnic community. So this was not an attempt to achieve ethnic purity. This was an attempt to achieve religious purity. The purpose of this cleansing was religious, not ethnic or racial. Holiness was the issue. The people of God needed to remember who they were before God, who they were before the nations, what they were called to do, and what the holy city of Jerusalem was rebuilt for in the first place. Not only that, but the presence of God in Jerusalem was to a large extent contingent upon the holiness of the people. These people were were returning from exile. They had been exiled because they were unfaithful to the covenant. And so it makes sense that they would return from exile with a renewed commitment to covenant faithfulness. Again, Israel was called by God to be a holy nation. So in order to determine who would live within the capital city, Nehemiah first needed to determine who belonged to Israel. Nehemiah needed to authenticate the citizenship of the people who would repopulate 
the city, and this would require some genealogical research. Chapter 7, verse 5. Then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And the rest of chapter 7 is a list of names. We spared you that in the reading. But chapter 7 is not a census of those currently living in the region. This is a record of a previous census. Nehemiah is publishing the census of those who originally returned from exile in the book of Ezra. Why? What is he hoping to accomplish with that? Well, as the wall was being rebuilt, there were many who supported Nehemiah, but there were also many who opposed Nehemiah, such as Tobiah, which you saw last week. So, faced with this deep division, Nehemiah appeals to an even deeper unity by going back in time. Nehemiah appeals to their common history. Some of you supported the rebuild, some of you opposed it, but the rebuild is over. And we need to return to our roots, all of us. And that brings us to chapter 8, verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, if I were to say, next Sunday, we're going to meet in the parking lot at 6 a.m. And we're going to read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy until about noon. How many of you would RSVP yes to that event? But that's, what, that's what we see happening here in chapter 8. And notice, Ezra and Nehemiah are not forcing the issue. The people are asking for it. The congregation tells Ezra to read from the book of the law. There are so many things about this that, that should challenge us. First of all, we need to admit that Few of, few of us would consider this to be a good use of our time. We sometimes struggle even to offer one hour per week to the corporate worship of God, much less a six-hour reading from some of the least popular books of the Bible. We should ask ourselves why. The public reading of Scripture is an essential element of worship, just as important as singing or preaching, if not more so. This is the Word of God. It should also challenge us to reconsider the significance of the Bibles on our bedside tables and the Bibles on our smartphones. These people were willing to gather around in the hot sun to hear the Word of God read to them. And we have that same Word in our pockets every waking moment. And so in, in 2022, if we don't know the Bible, it's, it's really because we don't want to. In addition, I, I think this should challenge our view of the law of God. Christians today have a love-hate relationship with the law of God, but our Jewish ancestors had a love-love relationship with the law of God. 
They understood that law and grace were not intention. The law of God was a manifestation of the grace of God. God is so gracious that he gives us a manual for living and thriving in a broken world. Part of maturing into adulthood is understanding the inherent goodness of rules and boundaries. If we're uncomfortable with rules and boundaries, if we resist rules and boundaries, that just reveals a lack of maturity. And the same goes for God's rules. If God is all-wise and all-loving, then perhaps his rules and boundaries are good for us. Perhaps they've been given to us so that our community and our society at large can experience abundant life in his presence. If we resist those rules and boundaries, we, we resist them to our own detriment. The law of God is a manifestation of God's grace to us. Okay, so at the beginning of chapter 8, the people build a platform for Ezra to stand upon. They build an elevated pulpit. Why would they do that? Well, for the same reason that I'm standing up here today. The people were literally elevating the word of God. They were literally placing themselves under the word of God. They were holding the word in high esteem. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Again, take note of the joy and attentiveness and reverence with which the people listen to the word of God. This should be our posture every Sunday. We have come here to receive from God. He desires to commune with us, to forgive us, to instruct us, to equip us, to nourish us, to recommission us. Think about it this way. The personal calendar of every Christian has a weekly standing meeting with the God of the universe. The personal calendar of every Christian has a standing weekly meeting with the God of the universe. If, if you want to take a moment to actually type that into your calendar, be my guest. This is not the type of meeting we take lightly. We, we don't treat it as optional. We don't we don't saunter in late. We don't check our email while the scriptures are being read or the soccer score or the Formula One standings. Those are the only sports going on right now, right? Nehemiah chapter 8 reveals a people who are desperately hungry. They are pleading with their leaders to feed them the word of God. They listen attentively and they search themselves and they stand and they kneel and they lift their hands and they, res they respond joyfully in unison. Amen, amen. And as the book of the law is read to them, the people naturally begin to recognize the ways in which their lives are incongruent with God's will. They have not kept the commandments and so they begin to weep and mourn and repent. Please, God, do not send us back into exile. 
Now, repentance is a good and proper thing. Jesus commands repentance. There is a time for mourning and fasting. Just think back to Nehemiah chapter 1. Or look forward to next week, Nehemiah chapter 9. There is a time for mourning and fasting. But this was not the proper time. Nehemiah says to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Verse 10. Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, repentance is essential to the Christian life. But repentance is not an end in itself. True repentance begets festivity. Forgiven people ought to be festive people. Advent people ought to be Christmas people. Lent people ought to be Easter people. The joy of Jesus is our strength. If we desire to be a strong community, we must first be a rejoicing community, a festive community. The Hebrew word for strength in verse 10 refers to a fortress or stronghold. So, These people have just finished rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They have just finished building a stronghold. And Nehemiah tells them, actually, your stronghold is not Jerusalem. Your stronghold is the joy of the Lord. And for us today, Jesus is that stronghold. Our rock and fortress and deliverer in whom we take refuge. The joy of Jesus is our strength. Now, we are repeatedly told that chapters 7 and 8 occur in the seventh month, which was, according to the Jewish calendar, a feast month. Specifically, the Feast of Booths was to be observed in the seventh seventh month. We're not going to get into the particulars of the Feast of Booths, but the feast was originally instituted in order to remember the Exodus. And so the broader implication is that this generation of God's people is being reconstituted in terms of the Exodus. These people are returning to the land of promise, and their return from exile is a new Exodus. And so this was not a time of longing. This was a time of fulfillment. Nehemiah encourages feasting and rejoicing rather than fasting and weeping because that for which they longed has arrived. In chapter 8, the time had come to rejoice. The city had been rebuilt with the help of God, and that meant that God's favor was already upon the people. He's not itching to send them back into exile. God's favor is on the people, and so the situation called for rejoicing, not repenting. At least not yet. So, in closing, I want to make something as explicit as possible. The book of Nehemiah is describing a season of restoration and reformation for the people of God. And this was 70 years in the making. The people of God had to wait 70 years to experience the restoration and reformation of God. Here's the thing. 
we only have to wait seven days at a time. We experience restoration and reformation every single Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. And the church worships on Sunday for that very reason. What we are doing right now is the thing that ought to come before all other things. In a a disorienting world, this is an orienting moment. To the degree that you feel aimless or anxious or worn out, this is a time of restoration and reformation. A time for communion. A time to remember the purpose for which you exist. God has welcomed us into his presence and he has has called us here for a purpose. He wants to continue the work of restoration and reformation in us as a community and in each and in each and every one of us as individuals. We come to sing his praises and to be reconstituted as his people and to hear his word read and to hear his word taught and to repent of our sin and to feast with him and with one another and then to be be recommissioned to keep that feast. That's why we, we conclude every Sunday with a call to hospitality. God has been very gracious and generous with us. And now he's inviting us to be very gracious and generous with others. Listen, if corporate worship is merely a good thing that Christians do, we will never be the sort of community God is calling us to be. On the other hand, if corporate worship is a weekly encounter, a weekly reorientation to the realest thing in the universe, to the God of the universe, then receiving his forgiveness and his instruction and his nourishment ought to spontaneously overflow into a joyful, festive manner of living. Listen, our our church may grow in the coming years, and we may have the manpower and the resources to to serve our neighborhood in new and creative ways. Or we might not. We might not grow. But no matter what happens, we can be a festive community, no matter what. And that is what the world is looking for from us anyway to be a people marked by the joy of our Lord. You are the people of God. Your spiritual ancestors are listed here in chapter 7. You have been brought to the holy city. This day is holy to our God. The joy of Jesus is your strength. If you have come to worship him today, then you are one of the people he has chosen to bring the kingdom to bear upon the world. To transform this neighborhood by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please, do not leave this place believing anything less than that. Please return to your homes and keep the feast. The joy of Jesus is your strength. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for not leaving humanity in our sin and brokenness. You have taken action to restore us and to reform us. Jesus, you have come to rebuild a city and to reform a people and to initiate a perpetual feast. You are joy to the world. And in your joy, we find our strength. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to all that we are called to be and to do as the people of God, as the city of God. Restore us and reform us according to your word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.